Blog Talk Radio. following sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never contacted Grace to You, we want to send you a free book by John called Good News, the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It expounds on the central message of Christianity, that Jesus Christ lived and died to save sinners. Request your free book by writing to goodnews at gty.org. That's goodnews at gty.org. And this offer is good in North America and Europe through December 2020. And now, unleashing God's truth one verse at a time, here's grace to you, Bible teacher John MacArthur. Well, all week we have examined the glories of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
been a marvelous experience, hasn't it? Just rich fellowship, conversation, praise, instruction. We feel like we've been lifted to the heavenlies. We've seen His majesty and His glory. We have had our own Mount of Transfiguration event. And like the uh, apostles, we have fallen before Him in humble amazement. And like the disciples on the mountain, we don't want it to end. Can't we just stay and live in that tent? We've already got a tent. I think what I'm trying to say is we have been being sanctified this week because sanctification occurs as a ministry of the Holy Spirit when we gaze at the glory of Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18, we're moved from one level of glory to the next. To gaze at the glory of Christ is a transforming experience. Not too long ago, I completed preaching through the Gospel of John for 116 weeks. I prepared hour upon hour, day upon day, and preached maybe a tenth of what was in my heart at the end of each week of study. I lived for 116 weeks in the Gospel of John in the glory of Christ. Somebody said to me when I finished the Gospel of John, don't you feel good that it's over? I said, no. I really feel sad that it's over. Day after day, I saw His glory, and I can't count how many messages this week came from the Gospel of John. John records His marvelous words, His miraculous works, culminating in His death and His bodily resurrection, followed by His appearances. And John brings his gospel to its great climax. Open your Bible to the 20th chapter, verses 30 and 31. And John sums it all up by saying, therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples. In fact, there were so many that in the last verse of John, he actually says, the world couldn't contain the books that could be written on everything He did. Many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. The Gospel of John is to provide evidence for the deity and messiahship of Jesus Christ, evidence that leads you to believe and have eternal life. That's the high point of the Gospel of John. That's the pinnacle, the Hirpunkt, as the Germans would say. And when I hit that verse, I thought, that should be the end. That should be the end. But it isn't. 
from the heights of that elevated summation of the evidential and evangelistic purposes of the Gospel of John, from that elevated, glorious revelation of the risen Christ, we come to chapter 21, and it's like being dropped off a cliff and landing with a thud. It's a crashing descent. In fact, the contrast is so jolting that some have suggested John didn't even write it. And to make it worse, we run right smack into Peter again. <laughs> what a pain. Can't we just end with Christ? Why do we have to go back to Peter? This is a very disappointing narrative. At first, do we really need this? Can't we just go flying into the book of Acts and, and to the ascension and to the day of Pentecost and see that, Peter? Why do we need this one? There's an answer to that. It's because with all the glory that has come through to the end of chapter 20, eventually that glory ends up in clay pots. This is for us. This has to be part of the story. When Luke wrote his gospel and then began to write the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 1 and verse 1 he said this, he was writing in the gospel about all that Jesus, do you know the next word? Began to do and to teach. As our Lord ascended and the Spirit came, the work was handed over to the clay pots we talked about on Tuesday. Weak and ugly and breakable and marred and replaceable. We have been to the mountain. We have seen the majestic glory. We have seen it by a more sure word Peter said, than even his own experience at the Mount of Transfiguration, a more sure word inspired by the Holy Spirit and written down. We too have been eyewitnesses to His glory, and now the deposit rests with us. We are to carry the glorious gospel forward, even in our frailty and our weakness. Peter did enough things to lose his ordination papers. If he had presented his testimony as an application to the Master's Seminary, he likely would have been rejected. Occasionally speaks for the devil. Occasionally pulls Jesus aside and tells him what to do. And when it gets tough, he denies and denies and denies that he ever knows the Lord and then swears. Oh, that's great stuff for a minister. The thud takes place in the first three words of verse 1. After these things. Jesus manifested Himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias 
And he manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus the twin, and Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee would be James and John, two other disciples, Philip and Andrew. What you've got here is all the people who were in the fishing business. These are all the Galilean fishermen. And you can throw in Thomas. Pretty startling here. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. You say, well, you know, everybody in the ministry needs recreation. No. This is not about grabbing a rod and a hook on a sunny day and enjoying recreation. The Lord had told them, Matthew 28, 16, go to Galilee, to a mountain that I tell you, and wait for me there for further orders. I'll be there. You wait. I'll give the commission. And you'll know what's next. In a predictable, impulsive, disappointing move, Peter decides to go back to his former career. And he is a leader, and like a bunch of rubber ducks, all the rest of the fishermen go after him. I'm going fishing. In the original, there's a finality in that statement. This is not recreation. This is going back to his old life. How do we know that? They went out, verse 3 says, they got into the boat, not a boat, and certainly not standing on the shore throwing a hook in the water. They went back to the boat, definite article. They were back in their own area, and they went back to their own boat, Peter's boat perhaps. This is a boat big enough for all of them. This is not a recreational boat. This is a fishing boat. And they took nets, and you don't use nets for recreational fishing. And in verse 7, it says, Peter stripped down to a loincloth. He went back to work. Verse 8 says they were a hundred yards out. They weren't just wanting to enjoy a nibble or two. Why does Peter do this? Why does he say, I'm going back to fishing? Hasn't he seen the risen Christ? Yes. Yes. Why is he going back to fishing? I think the answer is pretty simple. He had absolutely no confidence in himself. He was a proven failure. One minute he could be serving the Lord, and the next minute the devil. He could say, I'll follow you even to death. And then when all he had to do was confess Christ, he would deny him and deny him and deny him and deny him to irrelevant people in the dark. He had overestimated his wisdom, pompous way bragged about his strength. He had underestimated the power of temptation. He openly declared that he could handle any severe threat and never waver in his loyalty to Jesus. That foolish boasting, boasting led him to blatant betrayal. At that part of the story, we don't know if he's any different than Judas. Full of self-doubt, sense of serious overwhelming weakness, a history of failure, lack of trust in himself, inadequate. I can't do this. I can't do this ministry. But I can fish. Let's go back 
to fishing. Verse 4. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples didn't know it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, Children, you do not have any fish, do you? That is irritating, even if it's Jesus. That is, you really don't need to punctuate that. And they said, no. This wasn't the first time this happened. This had happened earlier in Luke 5. And you remember on that occasion, when Peter realized it was the Lord, what was his response? Lord, go away for I am a sinful man. Here he was again, this, again, the same sinful man in the presence of the same Son of God. And when the Lord said, you don't have any fish to do you, he was saying this, you can't fish anymore. I control the fish. You can't catch fish. I called you to catch Men. So, no, no, no. No, no, that, that was just a coincidence. You know, they were in a bad spot. No, just a coincidence, really. Look at verse 6. He said to them, Cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you'll find a catch. So they cast, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. There were no fish in the area. And when the, the Lord said to them, try the right side of the boat, you know, your instinct would be to say, what is he, crazy? Do you think we've fished off one side or the boat stays in one spot? What are you talking about? But the authority in his voice caused them to do what they did, even though at this point they didn't know who it was. So they cast the net on the right side of the boat. He said, you'll find a catch. They cast. They weren't even to haul the catch in because of the great number of fish. Therefore, the disciple whom Jesus loved, namely John, said to Peter, it is the Lord. This is the final miracle in the Gospel of John. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for the work and threw himself into the sea. This is so Peter. <laughs> Just so totally out of control and impulsive. He doesn't help the guys who are trying to haul in this massive amount of fish. He just dives in the water while he's thrown himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the little boat, big enough to hold all of them, not far from land, about a hundred yards, dragging the net full of fish. They couldn't get it in the boat. So they're working like crazy to get the fish to the shore. Finally got to the land in verse 9. Saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. Jesus had made breakfast. You know how Jesus makes breakfast? Breakfast.
And Jesus said, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. We'll add that. Simon Peter went up and drew the land, the net to land full of large fish, 153. I love the number. It's an eyewitness account of the number. They counted them. And it's an indication this is a real miracle. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. That's kind of a modest miracle. Massive catch without tearing the net. Now that Peter and the others know they can't fish anymore, that's the lesson. You can't fish. I control the fish. You can't fish for fish when, Matthew 4.19, you've been called to fish for men. And then the Lord does an amazing thing. He moves for the restoration of Peter and the others. Jesus said to them in verse 12, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question Him, Who are you, knowing that it was the Lord? Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. This was now the third time Jesus was manifested to the disciples after He was raised from the dead. I don't know what the conversation was like, but it must have been intense. There must have been some apologies. Sorry, Lord. We, we just didn't trust ourselves and You weren't here and we didn't know what we were waiting for. And, you know, we all ran. We all ran. We all scattered. We all fled when You were arrested. And, and uh, the only one who showed up at the cross was the one who leaned on Your breast, and that was John. And the rest of us never showed up. And, and you know, we're all guilty of defecting and we're all weak and we're all useless. And, and we just thought, well, we know how to do that and we'll, we'll just go do that. that. That's familiar to us. Then the Lord starts a restoration. You might have thought that He would, um, he would have found a replacement group. Right, I mean, come on. Three years, death, burial, resurrection. He's alive. They've seen Him. And they're still acting like this? This is time for the Lord to hit the reset. This is, um, this is restoration redux. Now, are you surprised that the Lord would restart these reluctant, weak disciples? Here's the good news. This is all He's got to work with. There's a bunch of clay pots with unclean lips. This is Isaiah all over again. So how does Jesus... Here's the question. How does Jesus disciple a disciple? You all are involved in discipleship? How does Jesus disciple a disciple? How does Jesus restore a disobedient disciple? How does Jesus do biblical counseling? How does Jesus shepherd a wayward sheep? How does He pastor them? How does He lead them to sanctification and obedience? How does He recover them for usefulness? It must be a long and very complex 
process. It's going to take months, if not years. How does He do it? How does Jesus disciple a disobedient disciple? You ready? He asks him one question. Three times. Do you love me? I hear a lot about counseling, biblical counseling, discipleship. I've seen complexity. It looks like the backside of a Persian rug. I've read books, endless books, paradigms of sanctification. How did Jesus disciple a disobedient, weak, vacillating disciple? Do you love me? Shocking for its simplicity. There's no ambiguity in that, right? There's no ambiguity. There's no mystery. Do you love me? I was a little guy, grew up in a pastor's family, and uh, I was writing a kind of a afterword for a, a book that somebody wrote. It was wonderful, and I agreed to write an afterword. It's supposed to be a little bit of personal reminiscing uh, my own kind of spiritual history. And I was thinking back about when I was a little kid and a teenager, young man. And all I can remember was that everybody said you need to believe in Jesus Christ. You need to believe in Jesus Christ. That was how it was. You, you need to believe in Jesus Christ. I was taught that from a child in the home in Sunday school. You need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I got a little older, people began to say you need to serve the Lord. You need to serve the Lord. You need to do something. Uh, it wasn't really biblically qualified or defined. You just needed to serve the Lord. That was, that was what you did. And and then a little later, the, the emphasis was you, you, you need to witness for the Lord. So you need to believe the Lord and, and you need to serve the Lord and you need to witness for the Lord. So I'm, I'm in high school and, and I'm believing and I'm, I'm serving and sometimes I'm going down to uh, central L.A. in the middle of the park in the middle of the city and I'm trying to witness for the Lord. But I'm not really... I'm not really experiencing any sanctifying power in my life. And finally, I was told when I got into college that if I wanted power in my life, I needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And somebody gave me a little booklet on it, Campus Crusade. I need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then it was always described as, you know, being, being continually kept filled with the Holy Spirit. And that was a passive kind of instruction. So, okay, I'm here. think I'm open. Go ahead, fill me. I was exposed to a lot of higher life, deeper life. Keswick, let go, let God. Shifted me into a passive mode, waiting for something to happen to me which left me struggling for sanctification. I don't think I really understood. Even when I came here in 1969, I began to understand when I came across 2 Corinthians 3.18, as you gaze at His glory, you're changed into His image by the Holy Spirit. That's not passive. 
That's aggressively active. And I began to realize that my sanctification was dependent not on creating a vacuum which the Holy Spirit would fill, but on the relentless pursuit of the knowledge of the glory of Christ. I said, there's only one way to do that. I got to go to the Gospels. And so for eight or nine years, I taught Matthew. Eight or nine or ten years, I taught Luke. Several years, I taught Mark. John. All I wanted to do was gaze at the glory of Christ. I went to Hebrews. I taught Hebrews. I went to Revelation. Taught Revelation a few years later. Taught it all over again. Went to Romans. Taught Romans. A few years later, taught Romans over again. When I finished the New Testament, I did a whole series on finding Christ in the Old Testament. I, I just couldn't let go of Christ. I don't know what you've been taught. I don't know what you've been told about sanctification, but I will tell you this, the clear word of Scripture is that your sanctification is directly related to your pursuit of the knowledge of Christ in all His glory. It's not passive. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. The, the Word, the revelation concerning Christ, let it dwell in you richly. And then I got to the end of John's Gospel the first time through, and I saw this, and I, I, I was just amazed at the simplicity of what our Lord said to recover and restore the most critical disciple of the bunch for the early church. He only asked him one question. Do you love me? Have you seen enough and heard enough to love me? I'd always known I needed to believe in him and serve Him, and witness for Him. I don't think I ever thought about loving Him. But then I should have, because what is the first and great commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Deuteronomy 6, Matthew 22, 37. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, and all your soul, and all your mind. That's the first and great commandment. And God has come to us in Christ. That applies to Christ. What does God want from me on behalf of Christ? He wants me to love Him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the Christian life. It's all tied to loving the Lord Jesus with all your faculties. 1 Corinthians 16.22 says that anybody who doesn't love the Lord is anathema, damned. If you're damned for not loving the Lord, then the opposite of that is being given eternal life, which is defined as loving the Lord. The motive for all your sanctification and the motive for all your service is this simple. Do you love me? So let's look at the conversation. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, he always called him by his old name when he was acting like his old self. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you love me? Always the question for a disobedient believer. Go right to the heart. Do you love me more than these? You mean more than these other disciples? <laughs> that wouldn't work. They were as guilty as he was. They all defected. They all went back to fishing. They were equally disobedient. No. Do you love me more than these boats and nets and corks 
and weights and anchors and trappings of your former life? Do you love me more than the stuff that made up your life? Which is like saying, if any man will come after me, let him what? Deny himself. You've got to let go of everything that made up your life. He uses the word agapao, the highest, noblest love of the will. Do you love me more than these things? Do you love me more than anything in this world? Matthew 10:37. He said, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. If you love your own life, the life that you have created more than me, you're not worthy of me. He's saying, do you love me enough to deny yourself? John Calvin said, no man will steadily persevere in the discharge of ministry unless love for Christ reigns in his heart. Like we haven't set this week up to focus on Christ just for the sake of information about Him, but for the sake of what I'm saying to you tonight, that you might love Him in a greater way than you've ever loved Him before. I think Peter must have been very sorrowful. He said to him, verse 15, Yes, Lord, You know that I love You. But he changed the word. He didn't use agapao, the highest, noblest love of the will. He dropped it down a notch. He said, I, I love you, and he used phileo, which simply means a warm affection. I like you a lot. Why did he do that? Because he was exposed. He was guilty. He was broken. He was humbled. He would have been a fool to say, I love you at the highest, noblest level. He couldn't say that. He says, Lord, you know, you know that I like you a lot. You say, that's a sad admission. Well, isn't it kind of sad to have to depend on omniscience? I mean, it isn't even obvious you've got to call on omniscience. He didn't say, Lord, you've seen my life. Isn't it obvious? No. He said, um, I have to call on your omniscience. And you know that I have deep affection for you. Let me tell you something. I think that moment was a moment of blessing. I think it's a blessing when the Lord knows everything and He knows that we love Him, even when it's not obvious. I'll say it another way. I'm glad that the Lord knows the things I desperately want Him to know. And that is such a blessing to me. I'm okay if He knows the things I really don't want Him to know. I need Him to know I love Him. Because sometimes it's not obvious. He knows I love Him truly. I don't love Him as I should. My love isn't everything it should be, but it's real. That's what Peter's saying. Amazingly. I mean, this is amazing. The Lord says to him, Basque my lambs. Shepherd my lambs. This is his ordination. You're accepted. 
Really? After all the ridiculous things that Peter has done, and here's just previous to this, another evidence of his impulsive disobedience, he puts him right back in the ministry, feed my lambs. And I, I would just tell you to look at, the, look at the pronoun here, personal pronoun. They're mine, and I'm turning them over to you. With far less than perfect love, the Lord deserves and desires, with love lower in quality than the Lord receives from all those who are around Him in heaven, Peter is restored to the ministry with a love that isn't even visible to anyone except the Lord in His omniscience. Feed my lambs, my little ones, young, tender, weak, vulnerable, prone to wander, prone to stray. I'm putting them in your hands. You know, when I think about that, I think about John 17, where our Lord, in praying to His Father, says, I'm going to the cross. Father, I guarded them. Now, when I go to the cross, I'm giving them to You to keep. When He couldn't care for them, He turned them over to His Father, and nothing could ever take them out of His Father's hand. But here's the wonder of wonders. He turned them over to Peter, my little lambs. Said to him a second time in verse 16, Simon, son of John or Jonas, do you love me? Agapao. He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, okay. Poimino, shepherd my sheep. Third time, he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And this time he dropped down to Peter's word. And he questioned even the lower level love that Peter thought he could get away with. Do you really have strong affection for me? This really hurt. This probes into Peter's heart. This is a spiritual biopsy. Cuts some of Peter's soul open. And Peter was grieved, lupeo, to have a pain, a deep pain or grief in the heart. Not because it was the third time. He needed three times. After all, he had denied the Lord three times. It wasn't because it was the third time. It was because the third time the Lord questioned even the love that he thought he could get by with. And again, he calls on omniscience. He said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. It's a lot like Isaiah, isn't it? Lord, you don't want me. I'm a man with unclean lips. Isaiah 6. And then in the vision, you hear the Lord, Who will go for us? There's nobody in the vision but Isaiah. This is not a rhetorical question. 
I don't think he said, Here am I, Lord, send me. I'm a dirty-mouthed man, send me. Probably said, Lord, you could send me. The Lord said, Go. You're my man. It's always clay pots, isn't it? With all our flaws and all our failures, all He asks out of us is that in His omniscience, He knows our love is not perfect, but it's real. It's real. I didn't know what it was to love the Lord as a young man because I didn't know enough about Him to grow that love. Shepherding is merely an extension of sanctifying love into serving love. You say, well, I'm a weak guy, struggling, failing. Sometimes an unclean lips experience, lack of self-confidence. I'm unworthy. Do you love me? Do you love me? We've tried this week to elevate Christ to increase your love. Now this love has a cost. Verse 18. Okay, Peter, you love me? Truly, truly, I say to you. Twenty-five times in the Gospel of John we have that little formula, meaning something very important. This is a verbal call to attention. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself, put on your own clothes, walk wherever you wished, did what you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands. What in the world does that mean? It's a euphemism for crucifixion. When you're old, you're going to stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. How do you know it's his crucifixion? Because the next statement is, he said this signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. History tells us he was crucified. Deny yourself and then what? Take up your cross. This is a living illustration of Luke 9.23. Peter, you will be arrested and you will be executed by crucifixion. You will be a martyr. Welcome back into the ministry. Remember when I told you, if they hated me, they will hate you? Say, oh, Lord, give the guy a break. What are you telling him that for? Wow. Do you want to live your whole life thinking around every corner is your crucifixion? Why did you tell him that? I think it was the best news Peter ever heard in his life. What? Yeah. Because what it told Peter is this. The next time you face death for me, you will not deny me. I think he lived in the triumph of that promise. That's the best news he ever heard. That steeled him for the future. And then, on the day of Pentecost, he was given the fullness of the Spirit, and he was dynamite right down to being crucified 
And when he was to be crucified, he didn't think he was worthy to be crucified like his Lord, so he asked to be crucified upside down. Can you imagine him saying, I'm not going to fail again. When it happens, I'm not going to fail again. I'm not going to fail. He had no confidence in himself. He had no history of faithfulness. In the face of danger, he was a disaster. The promise that he would face death triumphantly and die was the best news he could have ever heard. This is like Luke 14:26. If any man comes after me and doesn't hate his own life, he can't be my disciple. Do you love me? Do you love me enough to deny yourself? Do you love me enough to take up a cross if that's what I ask? Do you love me that much? There's one other component. This is love that not only demands a sacrifice, but it demands obedience. Look at verse 19 again. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Again, those are the three components of Luke 9.23. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. That's what it means to be a disciple. He says, follow me. Love that sacrifices in the face of death is love that obeys in life. But like everything else with Peter, everything is hard. Everything. Verse 20, the Lord says, follow me. Next statement, Peter turning around. Give me a break. This is impossible. Give, move down one notch to Andrew or somebody else. Are you kidding me? He turns around. He can't take one step following. And he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. John never calls himself by his name. Why would he when he can call himself the disciple whom Jesus loved? <laughs> he turns around and he sees John, the one who not only is disciple whom Jesus loved, but who also leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? John just, he can't get over the fact of the privileges that have been given to him to be next to Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. So Peter turns around, sees John, and um, he says, Lord, verse 21, what about him? I mean, this is remediation beyond comprehension. And then you have one, really one of the funniest statements. And Jesus didn't say a lot of funny things, but this is funny. He says, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? If, if he lives to the second coming, it's none of your business. <laughs> that's called hyperbole. That's not only hyperbole, that's sarcasm. That is dripping sarcasm. I mean, and that's what you say when you finally become so exasperated with your kids that you resort to dripping hyperbolic sarcasm. My dad used to say to me, you will never amount to a hill of beans. 
My dad was not into elevating self-image. A marrying to a hill of beans had nothing to do with what I was doing. I wasn't working with beans or anything like that. It was just a hyperbolic, sarcastic way to get a frustrated point across about my lack of quality behavior. What about him? I'm going to die, right? I'm going to die. What about him? I'm telling you, Peter is a constant project. This is a project. So you're all worried about the people you have to disciple in your church. Have a sympathy here, right? It's irrelevant, Jesus says. It is irrelevant if I want Him to live till the second coming. And so, of course, the rumor went out. You know what I heard? John is going to live till the second coming. <laughs> We call that the grace vine. <laughs> the saying went out among the brethren, verse 23, that the disciple would not die. Yet Jesus didn't say to him that he wouldn't die, only that if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? Irrelevant. Well, they became buddies, didn't they? Peter and John. From Acts 2 to 11... John didn't say anything. Peter did all his preaching. You say, well, maybe John didn't have anything to say. Oh, yeah, he did. When they finally opened his mouth, Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, the book of Revelation, so he was holding it in. <laughs> so this is, this is emphatic, the statement that our Lord gives in the original. You... Follow me. You, verse 22, you follow me. Forget about anybody else. Again, this is, this is Luke 9.23. Deny yourself. Face death. Follow me. John did die 30 years after Peter, by the end of the first century, most likely on the island of Patmos, 30 years really after both Peter and Paul were martyred. So the Gospel of John, the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ, rich, exalted, theological, profound, presenting the Son of God as the I Am, demonstrating His glorious deity by words and works, leading to the massive, glorious conclusion of chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, Many other signs Jesus performed in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in His name. That glorious conclusion is where the gospel reaches its zenith. That's kind of where we are tonight. We've gone to the heights with Christ. Tomorrow you're going to back, go back with a thud. We tumble from the end of chapter 20, from the pristine heights of glory, down to the difficulty of putting this glory in earthen vessels. That's us. And all the Lord asks is this, do you what? Love me.
I'll accept less than a perfect love, but not less than a real love. The benediction at the end of Ephesians, grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. That's not the nature of the... That's not the elevation of the love. That's the nature of the love. It's a real love. It's an incorruptible love. If you love me, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Go feed my lambs. Go feed my sheep. Deny yourself. Love me. Be willing to die if that's in the plan out of love for me. Live obediently, and that is in the plan, loving me. Peter learned his lessons. Turn to 1 Peter 5, and that's where we'll wrap up. 1 Peter 5. Now Peter's going to talk to us as a faithful shepherd. I'm glad he finally got here, aren't you? Peter writes, Therefore I exhort the elders among you. That's us. As your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you. You know what he's doing? He's repeating exactly what Jesus said to him three times. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, not yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Peter has gone from being a disciple who needed to be discipled to becoming our teacher our inspired teacher, telling us to shepherd the flock of God. Because, as we read earlier, though you have not seen Him, you, what? Love Him. I love how Peter closes his letter. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. Our Father, we come to you tonight with such gratitude, thankfulness. We we don't deserve to be in this ministry. You started with saying it's a mercy. It's a mercy, and we fall so short. And yet, if we love You, not with a perfect love, but with an incorruptible love, that's enough. We come down from the heights of the glories of Christ that we've seen all week long, and it's all been deposited in us clay pots. The glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ in a clay pot. Such a paradox. But then, of course, the explanation for our ministry can never be us. It can only be You. 
We love you. We want to love you more. Increase our love. May we, may we never, ever, ever stop searching to find your glory everywhere it is revealed so that we, by the work of the Holy Spirit, can be changed into your image from one level of glory and move toward that highest of all commands to love you, our Lord, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's our prayer. We ask these things for your glory alone. Amen. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible teacher with Grace to You. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace to You's website at gty.org. And for details about the Masters University, where John serves as Chancellor, go to masters.edu. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org, and it includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file. How do you
How old is the universe really? This is Ken Ham, author of the book on effective evangelism called Gospel Reset. Now, the Bible doesn't give us an exact age for the universe, and that's a good thing. Think about it. If it did, it would be out of date after just a year. But the Bible gives us the information we need. Genesis 1 tells us God created everything in six days. Because of the context, we know these were literal 24-hour days. And Genesis gives us very detailed genealogies. Now, these allow us to determine how many years there were between Adam and Abraham, about 2,000. And we know Abraham lived about 2,000 years before Christ, and of course, that was 2,000 years ago. So that gives us a young universe, just 6,000 years. Get answers to the questions of our day when you visit our website at AnswersRadio.com and discover more about God's Word when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com.
Blue stars still shine. This is Ken Ham, CEO of the Noah's Ark Attraction, The Ark Encounter, south of Cincinnati. Our universe is full of billions of stars, an untold number. And these stars aren't all alike. There are many different kinds. One kind are called blue stars. Now these are very hot stars and they burn through their fuel very quickly. They could only last a few million years at most. Yet our universe is full of brilliant blue stars. We find them in our own galaxy and far away. This fact isn't a problem in a biblical worldview. The universe is only about 6,000 years old. But this is a big problem for the evolutionary worldview. They must assume blue stars have all formed recently, but we never observe stars forming. Indeed, the heavens declare a young universe. Get answers to your questions about the age of the earth, the Bible, science, and more when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. You'll be equipped when you visit AnswersRadio.com. Black Lives Matter. Of course they do, but not to the Black Lives Matter movement. Black Lives Matter is rooted in cultural Marxism, in which people are divided by race, class, and gender into preferred minority groups. A person can gain power by claiming to represent these groups, and people submit to this power structure, often without knowing. Emotions are manipulated with myths and assumptions, like systemic racism, or cops are hunting black men, or white people are more privileged, or that race is even a thing at all. The goal is not unity. It's to keep people divided for power and money. Racial disparity is a multi-billion dollar industry. The founders of Black Lives Matter are pro-gay liberal feminists who support socialist Bernie Sanders and abortion giant Planned Parenthood. This is the agenda. The only black lives that matter are the ones that are politically beneficial. You don't hear about black police officers, nor those killed by black-on-black crime, nor the 400,000 black babies killed by abortion every year. Titus 3.3 says that we were all once slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But Christ is our peace, who makes us one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. If you truly love others and want to stamp out hatred, preach Christ and him crucified for our sins. Love God and love your neighbor and raise godly churches and families when we understand the text. That is from when we understand Texas also known WWUTT on YouTube and let's see what the next is gonna play this. Carbon fourteen in diamonds? This is Ken Ham inviting you to have an encounter with God's work at the Ark Encounter. Diamonds are the hardest substance on earth and they're basically impossible to contaminate. And that's a problem for those who believe in billions of years. Let me explain. Scientists have found carbon-14 in diamonds. Now, carbon-14 decays quickly. After 50,000 years, it would almost be undetectable. So anything supposedly older than that shouldn't have any carbon-14 in it. Yet diamonds do. And they're thought to be billions of years old. This is a big problem for the evolutionary worldview. But it's not a problem for those who start with God's word. We live in a young universe. Diamonds are young. Plan your visit to our full-size Noah's Ark at the Ark Encounter when you visit our website at AnswersRadio.com and find answers to your questions when you visit AnswersRadio.com. I have a Bible that I read. I know the truth and I believe. 
short-lived comets? This is Ken Ham, editor of the apologetic series of books, The New Answers Books. Have you ever seen a comet? They're rare, but they're beautiful. The iconic feature of a comet is a long glowing tail. But what causes that? Well, a comet is basically a ball of gas and dust. Now, as it passes close to the sun, solar radiation blasts away part of the comet. It leaves a beautiful tail behind it. So every time the comet passes close to the sun, it gets smaller. Now, of course, that means comets don't last forever. And yet we still have plenty of comets. That's a problem in the evolutionary view of millions of years. So they propose a cloud way out past Pluto that creates these comets. But there's just no evidence for it. Discover more truth from God's Word and science when you visit our website, AnswersRadio.com, and subscribe to receive free daily email insights from Ken Ham at AnswersRadio.com. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine.
magnetic fields and a young universe. This is Ken Ham, inviting your family to visit the Ark Encounter south of Cincinnati. Our Earth is surrounded by an invisible magnetic field. It protects us from harmful radiation from the sun. But our magnetic field is decaying. Each year it gets a tiny bit weaker. This means it was stronger in the past. Now many people believe the Earth is billions of years old, but just a few million years ago, the magnetic field would have been so strong, life would have been impossible. And we're not the only one with a magnetic field. Other planets have them too. Now, if they were billions of years old, they should have weak magnetic fields. But they're the strength predicted by creationists, starting from what the Bible says about a very young universe. Plan your visit to the life-size Noah's Ark at the Ark Encounter when you go to our website at AnswersRadio.com. Discover more about the truth of God's Word at AnswersRadio.com. preach Christ, Him crucified. We preach the Bible. We preach from God's inspired Word, not from movie trailers. Here are a few reasons this concept is lame. Seven reasons movie illustrations are lame by The Cripplegate. Number one, not everyone has seen the movie. That means you got a lot of splaining to do, Pastor, which leads us to number two. The communicator, the pastor, has to exposit a movie. Before you can start preaching a life lesson from Harry Potter, you got to explain Harry Potter. Who is he? What's the setting? What's the context? What's going on historically with Harry Potter? You know, all the stuff that we're supposed to be doing the Bible when we preach a verse. Before we can even get to a Bible verse, you need to do a lot of expositing, but not about Holy Writ, but about Harry Potter. Number three, those who have seen it critique your version. When the pastor explains Harry Potter, the critic is going to be thinking, well, that's not exactly right. So now the basis of your sermon illustration is under question by a Harry Potter critic. Do we see how futile it is to use something besides the Bible? And number four, scripture should interpret movies, not vice versa. Which source is authoritative? Why would we advertise a sermon series based on a movie when Jesus Christ is supposed to be the star of the show? Why promote the lesser when we have the greater and I fear the answer to that could be we're not as confident in Jesus and his ability to draw a crowd as we are with Harry Potter reason number five sermon illustrations ain't such a good idea why would we bring worldly entertainment into the church number six many people find PG movies offensive you've offended them out of the gate and finally Number seven, it fosters biblical illiteracy. We have such precious little time to preach the word of God to the sheep these days. Why spend half of it exegeting Harry Potter? Every precious moment should be spent on preaching the better. If we do not believe that Jesus Christ 
is at least as interesting as Harry Potter. Can't believe I just uttered that sentence. Then maybe, just maybe, the pastor who adheres to that methodology is in the wrong business. That was from Wretched, and you can find it on YouTube, it's Wretched, W-R-E-T-C-H-E-D, and they have a website, wretched.org, and they have a radio show or a podcast, we call it, and also they have a TV show, that's what what they, the YouTube stuff comes from. And let's see, now I'm going to play... This is from Shylan's Darling Mystery. Get up and watch. 
Let me start this off with a hallelujah to Jesus, the sovereign ruler. This is not a rumor. Got the truth, so we about to school you. Check out a style maneuver. Shout it to you like the loudest group of Christ. Put us up from out the sewer. We don't have to doubt the future. Crashing our verses as we bask in his worship. You asking the purpose, partly to snatch hats from the furnace. To Jesus' extravagant service, immaculate purchase. He was smashing the serpent, and we only scratching the surface. He's the seed that was conceived in the womb of a virgin. The sun emerges in the manger while the angels serenade him. It's the birth of the Savior. The greater I am became a man, came as a lamb, and would be executed to execute the plan to substitute the sand. In the place of the wicked on the cross, he was lifted, but we considered him stricken and afflicted, just like the prophets predicted. He came at the proper moment to stop his opponent and lay down his life to offer atonement. He's the most magnificent, the total antithesis of insufficient, the blessed, the glorious, splendid, transcendent, difficult to comprehend, independent of space and time, but presently present, suspending the heavens with speech. From coast to coast, he speaks peace to wind and seas, got heavenly hosts, easily posted on bended knees, controls the cosmos with the most authority, so we both in a He's the sovereign thriller, the awesome healer, the law fulfiller, the solemn killer, the fraud revealer, no god is realer, yeah. We can take any time in the scripture, what you get is a prominent picture. See his light shining right in the night, and it's right in the might, and the diamond in the mixture. See his name at all the renown, though, when he came for the lost that he found, though. He was tamed and floss all around, but remained for the manger, the cross, or the clown. Yo, Satan had a shirt hold on him, fight for the rope, but dope, and then. All to the eyes of the S to the E to the N, that's what we hoping in. Risen on his spell check, the risen king can rinse clean, the most rebellious. I was hellbound, now I'm spellbound. Word is born. I'm a bond servant to the word of life. Uh, call me a sellout. I was bought with a price. We gotta hope it won't fail us when we return to the dust. We will rise up just like the one who justified us. It's not wishful thinking when the truth sinking. We are clinging to the promises of God bringing an everlasting kingdom. Nothing can compare to the worth of what we inherited. Nothing in heaven on earth can measure what Christ merited. The skies declare the affairs of his glorious care. The God who is there, who's aware, who delights in our prayer. His purposes are permanent and perfectly perfect. Everything that orbits around his glory subordinate. He is the most excellent one, intrinsic, infinite son, preeminent the name, par excellence, prenom, phenomenon. He's beyond phenomenon, you see, the father of cosmology, the abba of astronomy. He's part of we, a pottery. It's shocking Jesus died for me. The father, he adopted me and constantly provides for me. Whether or not I got degrees, you gotta see his odyssey. From sovereignty and lottery to poverty and robbery to resurrected bodily apocalyptic prophecy. He's stopping all the mockery and scholarly snobbery that don't Acknowledge him properly. You ought to be on bended knee before the preeminent. It's awfully arrogant to reject him to your detriment. Study the development from Old and New Testament. You'll find a theme that's prevalent from age to age. It's relevant. Crisis on its center stage. Forget religious sentiments that center on man. But something less is what you're settling. He is the most excellent. Exercising benevolence and blessing a remnant with the benefits of his inheritance. Yeah. The sin of sinners that separated and segregated. That severed the relations between man and his maker. And placed Christ on his car. Costly cross and compensated his life, death, and resurrection, emancipated and gave us freedom from it all, freedom from the effects of the fall, freedom from Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden and from the law. So the saints stand and applaud his grace and glorious cause with hands raised, praising his name, singing glory to God. <laughs> Hey, yo, they said it was over, man. They said it was over. 
but it ain't over. We just getting started. Yo, 7,000, we all at. Let's go. Stand up, hands up. If you truly love the son of man, trust. Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive. And his fame is going to spread across the land. What's up? Stand up, hands up. Does anybody love the son of man? Trust. Jesus is the king, so his people we will sing. And forever say worthy is the land. What's up? Surprise, no surprise, I'm back. With Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection More power than gravity His knowledge and strategies confound the academy Bow to his majesty He paid sin's salary Took up blame on Calvary Those who love his name spread his fame is the policy All eyes on the mattress price of his sacrifice That's prize our master Christ And rise in the afterlife What, did we forget about the holiness of God or something? Did we forget that God owes us a rod or something? See the snake bruise when Christ came to save dudes Who hate truth, the gospel is not fake news Sin, the gospel sweeter than it's ever been Ain't nothing changed, let us sin, we got the medicine It's still human emergency, the serpent attack You think Jesus can't save? That's alternative facts Stand up, hands up If you truly love the son of man Trust, Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive And his fame is gonna spread across the land What's up? Stand up, hands up Does anybody love the son of man? Trust, Jesus is the king So his people we will sing and forever say To my composition Lots of rhythm But not tradition No kind of different But God's consistent No contradiction My proposition Through crucifixion He mocked and crippled His opposition It's not some fiction I'm spitting The son of God is risen And my incentive For godly living Is I'm forgiven Jesus came to unlock the prison And through the spirit He brings a new birth Like an obstetrician At times I listen A lot of Christian hip-hop Is missing The proposition It's my suspicion We drop the mission Not to this But the word of God Is it not sufficient The doctrine is That the gospel fixes Our shock Condition. God the Spirit supplies conviction through proper diction Against the backdrop of our tradition, the gospel glistens A squad of Christians go out and witness a God's commission Cause Jesus Christ got the top position, no competition Stand up, hands up If you truly love the Son of Man, trust Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive And his fame is gonna spread across the land What's up? Stand up, hands up Does anybody love the Son of Man? Trust Jesus is the King, so his people we will sing and forever say worthy is the land. What's up? They want Jesus in the background like elevator music, but we gon' celebrate him, relegate him, we refuse it. They hate Christian hip-hop, I peep myself. They say we too redundant, well let me repeat myself. What I gotta say almost feels too real estate. Sit back and feel the weight of what a real estate. Cause yo, Jesus Christ got me in the real estate. I'm purchased property, I feel like I'm real estate. If the Father wasn't gracious, no sin in him. Again. He came straight blameless, no sin in him. Again. Nothing's been the same since, no sin in him. Again. Fakers lack his fragrance, no sin in him. This is not the picture in a frame to still Jesus. Nah, we serve the rock, the harder than still Jesus. So how we gonna be silent, let the world still Jesus. When the world and its trends pass away, it's still Jesus. Then, up, hands up, if you truly love the Son of Man, trust, Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive and his fame is gonna spread across the land, what's up, stand up, hands up, does anybody love the Son of Man, trust, Jesus is the King, so his people we will sing and forever say worthy is the land, what's up, worthy is the land, what's up, 
I'm writing this to you I really hope you hear my heart When thinking about describing you I really don't know where to start Can't start at the beginning Cause you are before the beginning Way before the beginning And this fallen world's distorted opinions It was just a holy trinity Ruling from infinity Glory blazed tremendously Loving one another endlessly Billions and billions of years ago Outside of what we know as time Nobody else was there to know But Lord, here's the thing that blows my mind As long ago as that was Long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord. Oh Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same. You have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful. You never change. You remain the Supreme by far, not just because of what you do, but simply because of who you are. There's none like you in existence. You are God and you need no assistance. Even though we show you resistance, you sent Jesus to close the distance that existed between God and man. According to your sovereign plan, we changed many times in one lifespan. I changed even since this song began. Lord, I'm so glad that you're not like us. All that you do will certainly last. You are the rock that we can trust. Shows us back in eternity past. As long ago as that was. As long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful, you never change, you remain the All of my inconsistencies, all of my idiosyncrasies, still you pursue relentlessly. At times I wonder how this can be. Surely it's because of the cross. When Jesus paid the full penalty and bore the burden of sin's great cost. I'm saved by grace and faith in God. I look to Christ and I trust he died. So even though I'm being sanctified, I can't be any more justified. His work is finished that cannot change. And with this knowledge I am free. Forever this grace it will remain because of what happened on Calvary. As long ago as that was. Long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord. Oh Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same. You have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful. You never change. You remain.
What are you studying at the college? Kinesiology. Now, do you think this is an afterlife? Uh, to be honest, I don't know, but I could really care less right now. Do you ever think about it? No. Are you afraid of dying? No. You ever lost a loved one? Yes. Doesn't that make you think? No. So where do you get your morals from, if it's not from the Bible? Um, and how do you know right from wrong? <laughs> Lessons learned from my youth and people I see. Let me ask you another question. Do you think God is angry at you or happy with you? No, like I said, I don't know. I don't believe. I don't... I mean, I do believe there's somebody over my shoulder. You think you're a good person? I guess. How many lies have you told in your life? <laughs> a lot. Ever stolen something? For sure. Ever used God's name in vain? Sure have. Jesus said, if you look at a woman and lust for her, you commit adultery with her in your heart. Have you ever looked at a woman with lust? With lust? Yeah, sexual desire. You want to get a bed with her. <laughs> I mean, you can say that, yeah. So, Brian, I'm not judging you, but you've just told me you're a lying thief, a blasphemer, and an adulterate heart. The video will continue in a few seconds, but I wanted to remind you to please subscribe to our channel and click on the notifications bell. And don't forget to like, comment, and share. Thank you. Are you going to be innocent or guilty on Judgment Day? I don't know. Will you be guilty like the rest of us? And if you're guilty, will you go to heaven or hell? Like I said, I don't really believe in those. Well, let me tell you what the Bible says. It says all liars will have their part in the lake of fire. No thief, no blasphemer, no adulterer will inherit the kingdom of God. So you're in big trouble. Can you see that? I guess. Now tell me, what did God do for guilty sinners so he wouldn't have to go to hell? Any idea? No, well, Jesus died on the cross to take the punishment for the sin of the world. You probably heard that, but you may not have heard this, Brian. The Ten Commandments are called the moral law. We broke God's law, and Jesus paid the fine. If you're in court and someone pays the fine, the judge can let you go even though you're guilty. And God can let you go. He can forgive your sins, commute your death sentence, let you live forever because your fine was paid on that cross 2,000 years ago. Just before Jesus died, he cried out, It is finished. In other words, the debt has been paid. Because of his death and resurrection, God can forgive all those secret sins, those sexual imaginations, the fornication, the lying, the stealing, the blasphemy can be forgiven, and God can legally let you live forever. Just like a judge can legally let a criminal go, even though he's guilty, if someone else pays his fine. Do you understand that? Can you hear what I'm saying? A little bit? Yeah. Well, I'm trying my best for you. You know, God is offering you everlasting life as a free gift. You don't, you don't have to clean up your life. You can't clean up your life. Don't get religious. Just do what the Bible says. Repent and put your trust in Jesus, like you trust a parachute. And the moment, the moment you do that, God will forgive your sins and grant you the gift of everlasting life. And that's what happens when you become a Christian. God takes that sinful, selfish, evil heart of ours and transforms us so we love righteousness and love God. Brian, take uh, a little bit. Just a little bit. Well, I hope you'll think about it. What do you think about it? A little bit. Yeah. <laughs> okay, thanks for talking to me, Brian. I really appreciate it. Oh, man. This from Living Water, how to share the gospel with anyone. And show those silver so that go out with Yancey and friends and the VRBLE. Bye for now.